I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. There's a game that I've played since I was young. Maybe you've played it too. It costs you a lot, but it doesn't cost you any money. In fact, you can't even buy it at the stores. It's a mental game. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to set it up. You can play it by yourself or you can play it with friends. But it's a game I wouldn't recommend because every time I play it, I really wish I hadn't. Because it's fruitless and you can't win. Maybe you've played it. I call it, what if? And then there's another version called, why me? I found myself playing it recently when I heard about the fire in Gordonville that killed her and her baby. I found myself saying, what if that 16-year-old had never met that guy? And what if she hadn't run away from home? And what if the authorities had done something? And what if his parents hadn't made them live outside in a shack? What if? You know, after September 11th, the news media interviewed relatives of those who had died. And I could tell immediately that many of them were playing the same game. What if he hadn't taken that job at the World Trade Center? What if she had gotten on a different airplane? What if the government had informed us of the threat that existed? What if? But you know, right in the middle of one of those news segments, they interviewed a lady. Her husband had died in the crash of one of those airplanes. And it was evident from the moment she began to speak that she wasn't playing the game. She said, whatever happened, I know that it wasn't out of God's control. And I know that God has a purpose in this. I'm heartbroken, but God gave us 10 years together and now he's chosen to take my husband away. And I'm trusting that he knows best. Wow. That was so refreshing to hear. She was hurt and she was crushed, and she was experiencing great pain and great loss, but she understood that there is a purpose in the happenings of life. She understood and grasped the fact that, there, that God is sovereign. She didn't need to play the game. You see, she understood the tr truth taught in Romans 8:28, where it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. You say, does that mean all things? Yeah, all things. You see, when God says all things, he doesn't mean almost everything. He means all things. Happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, evil things, good things, all things. Now, it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. They harmonize. Sometimes when my wife is baking something, I walk into the kitchen and she's got a cup of this and a bowl of that and some ingredients laid out on the counter and I may walk up and say, you're not going to put that in there, are you? 
And maybe she's got a hunk of lard. You're not going to put that into this thing that we're going to eat. And she says, trust me, it'll be good. And it almost always is. <laughs> See, that's what God does with the all things in your life. He works them together for good. Job had a lot of negative things happen in his life. In fact, in one day's time, he lost everything. He lost all of his livestock, 11,000 head, and all but four of his servants died along with his ten children. And before he could say, well, at least I've still got my health, he lost that. And what was God doing? He was working all things together for good. At the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42 and verse 5, Job says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. God, I used to hear about you. I used to talk about you. I used to know about you. But now through the all things of my life, I see you with my very eye. And at the end of that chapter, it says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Joseph, as a young boy, was his father's favorite. He had a bright future until his brothers turned against him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. And just when things seemed like they were going to work out, Potiphar's wife falsely accused him and he ended up in prison. And there in prison, he got a glimmer of hope when he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker. And then his hopes were dashed again when he was forgotten for two more years, sitting there in that dark dungeon. Now, if you'd stopped Joseph anywhere along the path of his life, he probably might have been a very disillusioned young man. What is God doing? Why is he letting this happen to me? In fact, in the midst of all of that, his father Jacob was sitting at home playing what if. You read about it in Genesis 42-36. He says, I shouldn't have let Joseph go, and I've lost my son Simeon, and now you want to take my son Benjamin. All these things are against me. But what was God doing? God was working all things together for good. He was using all of these things to raise up a prime minister, Joseph, who would save the world from famine. And Jacob went down to Egypt with his 12 sons. He came back 400 years later with a multitude. He went down as a family. They came back as a nation. The great apostle Paul was sitting in prison in Rome. You say, well, why would God allow this great preacher to be stuck in prison somewhere? What possible good could ever come out of that? Well, in Philippians 1.12, Paul tells us, he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances, difficult as they are, 
have worked out for the progress of the gospel. How did that happen? Well, Paul led the guards who were attending him to the Lord, and then they were able to actually go into Caesar's household and lead people to Christ in the very chief household in the city of Rome. And it was during that time when Paul was sitting in prison that he wrote most of the letters that we have in the New Testament. God works all things together for good. You say, well, I see how God can work circumstances together for good, but what about sin? Does God work even our sins together for good? Well, look at the verse. Does it say that we know that all things consistent with righteousness work together for good to those who love God? No. It just says all things. Do things that come as a result of sin work together for good? During a famine in Israel, a fellow by the name of Elimelech and his wife took their two sons and they left Judah and they went to the country of Moab. That was a sin. While they were there, their two sons married Moabitess women. That was a sin. Now what was God doing through those two sinful acts? He was working all things together for good. You see, Elimelech's wife was a woman you know by the name of Naomi. And through these sinful acts, God was actually drawing a young woman into his family by the name of Ruth. And Ruth was going to become the great-grandmother of David and be in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look in Matthew chapter 1 at the genealogy of Jesus, two things stand out. One is that women are mentioned in that genealogy. Now, women are never mentioned in Jewish genealogies. They're just not mentioned. And there in Jesus' genealogy, we see four women. What's interesting about those four women is that they were all public sinners. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar was a lady who seduced her father-in-law into having twins. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess woman who broke the law by marrying a Jew. And Bathsheba was a lady who committed adultery. Can God bring good out of bad Absolutely. You see, God has a way of turning it all around. Maybe some of you were born out of an illicit relationship, or you come from a broken home, or you yourself have gone through a divorce. That is not irreparable damage. You see, God is in the business of bringing good out of bad. If you go back to Joseph, it was his brother's sin that put him in bondage in Egypt. Years later in Genesis 45, Joseph addressed his brothers and listen to what he said to them. He said, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. And then in Genesis 50, in verse 20, he says, And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. All things work together for good. That is a principle of God. That is a promise of God. But I want you to notice something. 
This promise is not for everyone. It's conditional. It's limited. It's selective. For whom does God work all things together for good? Well, he tells us it's to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, there are people in this world today who don't love God and who have not been called according to his purpose. And for those people, the events of life do not work together for good. In fact, in the case of unbelievers, all things work together for bad. Because ultimately, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And so this promise applies to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that's really two ways of looking at the same group. Two perspectives. You can see it from our side, and you can see it from God's side. First of all, He describes this group from our side. He calls them those who love God. And that's every believer. Every believer loves God because we're his children. Back in verse 15 of this chapter, it says, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. We call him Dada. And how do we do that? By the Spirit of God. You see, that is a God-given love that God places in every believer's heart. It's not a love that I produce. It's not a love that I pump up. It's not a love that I generate. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. And Romans 5.5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is in us. And so Paul is able to describe Christians as those who love God. Loving God is the essence of what a Christian is. In fact, so much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 can say, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And so first of all, he describes this group of people from our perspective, those who love God. And then he describes them from God's side, and that is those who are called according to his purpose. We are the called of God. Now, that means more than God yelled at you. It means more than God invited you or God asked you. Everyone is invited. The gospel goes out. The call of the gospel goes out to everyone. But he's talking here about believers. And in a special sense, believers are called. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7 says we are called as saints. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This word called is very similar to the word used in the New Testament, chosen. In fact, let me show you how he uses this word. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul says, I am called as an apostle. Now, does that mean that Paul was invited to be an apostle? Was Paul asked to be an apostle? Did Paul volunteer to be an apostle? No, he didn't. He was on the road to Damascus doing everything he could to stomp out the name of Christ and a light appeared from heaven, knocked him on the ground. He couldn't see for three days. And God spoke to Ananias and said, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul was called as an apostle. And in the same sense, if you're a believer, you have been called. Called to do what? Called to do His purpose. 
You see, God's calling is purposeful and God's calling is permanent. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, it says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. But there's a key phrase I don't want you to overlook in verse 28. And that's the first words. It says, and we know. Why is it in the all things of life, some people seem to grow and some people seem to wither? Well, I would suggest to you the difference is what we know. Now, I find it very interesting that in verse 26, he says, we don't know. And now in verse 28, he says, we know. In verse 26, we don't know how to pray, but we do know that the Spirit knows how to pray, and He's praying for us. You see, we don't know the details, but we do know that God works all things together for good. It's like needlepoint or embroidery. The top side is beautiful. The bottom side is a jumble of threads and knots. And a lot of times in the tapestry of God, we only see the underside. From our perspective, a lot of the things that happen in life look like loose threads. And so if you are going to understand the events of life, it's going to be on the basis of what you know. You see, I know that nothing happens in my life that doesn't pass through the will of God. I know that everything in my life is Father-filtered. I know that God has a plan for my life. I know that God is working according to a fixed eternal purpose, and it's good. And what is the good? What is God's purpose? Is He working all things together for my comfort? For my riches? For my wealth? For my health, for my fame, for my prosperity? No. He tells us what the purpose is in verses 29 and 30. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God has a five-step plan. He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. Now let me just briefly walk you through that plan. It says, first of all, for whom He foreknew. The word foreknew means to know before. God's plan for you began in eternity past. Now the question is, what did he know before? Well, some people say that this simply means he looked down through the pages of history and saw who would believe on him and said, wow, that's interesting. But see, I have a problem with that interpretation. Because when I turn in my Bible a couple pages to Romans chapter 11 and verse 2, it tells me that Israel was foreknown by God. 
Now, does that mean that God looked down through the pages of history and saw that Israel would choose him? No. Israel didn't choose God. God chose Israel. And over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, I find that Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, does that mean that in eternity past, God looked ahead and said, wow, I guess I'm going to create a world and send my son into it to be the Savior? No, that's not what that means. You see, when it says he foreknew, it doesn't simply mean that he looked ahead and learned something. It means that he controlled it from the very beginning. And you see, what is true about Jesus Christ and what is true about Israel is also true about you. God foreknew you. Now let me add another angle to this word because the scriptural concept of knowing involves no, more than just knowing some facts. The Bible says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a child. And so when the Bible talks about knowing, it talks about knowing in intimate relationship. God said this to Israel in Amos 3.2. He said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, he knew all the other families. But he only knew one family in an intimate relationship, and that was Israel. In Matthew 7.23, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Now, Jesus knew them well, but he didn't know them in an intimate relationship. And you see, when you take that concept of this word and you put it in this verse, it tells us there were people that God ahead of time chose to place his love upon. There were people that God ahead of time chose to bond himself to in a loving relationship. You say, well, why did he do it? You're going to be asking that question throughout eternity. And then secondly, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now that's a word that means to determine the outcome beforehand. It's a word that means to determine a person's destiny beforehand. You see, when you start to understand this word, you realize that your Christian life didn't begin when you committed yourself to Christ. It began when He committed Himself to you. And that happened in eternity past. I am a person of destiny. You are a person of destiny. And what is that destiny? He goes on to say, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Wow, what a destiny. To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. To be like Jesus. And then he adds that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God so loves Jesus Christ that he determined ahead of time to have a whole lot more like him. He wants to have a whole lot of children in his family. And those children are made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the firstborn. And that word means the chief, the preeminent one. And then the third step is in verse 30. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And here's where God calls us to himself. 
Here is where the, this plan enters into the specter of time. The ones that God foreknew and predestined, He called. Now again, this word called is not just a general invitation. It's a calling you out. It's like when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. He called him out. He called him out of death into life. And that's what God has done for us. We were spiritually dead. And He has called us out of that dead condition into His life. And then fourthly it says, And whom He called, these He also justified. Now, we don't need to spend long on that word because that's been the whole message of the book of Romans. Justification by faith. Justified means to be declared righteous. God has not only forgiven you, He has declared you righteous by giving you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's where we are right now in this plan. And then fifthly, He says, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. Now, I want you to notice something. Glorified is in the past tense, which tells me from God's perspective, it's already done. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's how certain God's plan is. Now, I want you to notice something about this plan. I want you to notice who does the action. It's God. It says, He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. You see, it's His plan. It's His purpose. He is the one who is working all things together for good. And then secondly, I want you to notice the parameters of God's purpose. It begins in eternity past with God foreknowing you. It ends in eternity future with you being glorified. Which tells me, if you are going to understand how all things work together for good, you're going to have to understand it from an eternal perspective. You can't sit around and say, well, everything hasn't worked out for good this month, so God's failed me. No, God's plan begins in eternity past and it ends in eternity future and there will be some things in this life that you will never understand this side of the grave because God has an eternal purpose in mind. You will never comprehend the purpose of God with a temporal mindset. And then thirdly, I want you to notice that all those who enter the program finish. He says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Now, there's no fallout there. There's no dropouts. There's no casualties. That's the security of the plan of God. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now these are a lot of complicated words. Foreknow, predestined, justified, difficult words. So let me simplify it for you. In simple terms, what is the plan of God? In simple terms, what is God's purpose for you? Well, it is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
You see, that is the ultimate product, and that is also the present process. That is the good in verse 28. In fact, I've told you this before. You can circle the word good in verse 28 and draw a line down to verse 29 in the phrase, conform to the image of his son. All things work together for good. We like to quote that verse. It would be more accurate to say, all things work together for the good that I will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, God's purpose has never changed. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. From the very beginning, God wanted to make man in his image. But you know, when Adam sinned, the image was marred. The image was blemished. And when Adam had a child, you know what it says in Genesis 5, 3? It says, Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image. That's interesting. God made Adam in God's image. Adam sinned and Adam distorted the image and now we are all made in Adam's image. But God sent Jesus to restore the image of God. So I can stand here this morning and tell you that God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus. God's number one priority in your life is to conform you, change you into the image of Jesus Christ. Now let me add a warning to that because one of the traps of the Christian life is conformity. It's trying to conform to other Christians or trying to conform to other people's expectations. God doesn't want you to conform to other people. God wants you to conform to Jesus Christ. So God's number one purpose in your life is not to make you happy. It's not to make you wealthy. It's not even to make you healthy. It's to make you like Jesus. And so an important question we could ask this morning is, how does God do that? How does God take you and me and make us like Jesus? Well, there are two primary ways that he does that. Two primary things that he uses to make you and me like Jesus. Number one is his word. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, sanctification is just a big word that means for you and I to be set apart, to be like Jesus. And God uses His Word to do that. The more you read His Word, the more that happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's a great verse. That says, as we look at the Lord, as we reflect on the Lord, as we meditate on Him, we are changed to be like Him. You ever see a couple that's been together for a long, long time, and they start thinking alike? 
They even start looking alike. You ever see somebody who looks like their dog? You know, when you spend a lot of time together, you pick up the other person's attributes. And the Lord wants you and I, His children, to spend time with Him. And the more time we spend with Him, the more we become like Him. The more we look at Him, the more we become like Him. And how do we look at Him? We look at Him in His Word. But then there's another way that He makes us like Jesus. Not only through His Word, but through our circumstances. Difficulties, trials, common experiences, problems, pains, pressures, frustrations. See, those are the all things in Romans 8, 28. James 1, 3 says, The trials of life test our faith. 1 Peter 1, 7 says, The trials of life refine our faith. They test us. They prepare us. They deepen us. They build our character. You see, if God is going to make you like Jesus then doesn't it make sense that He will take you through some of the things that Jesus went through? There were times when Jesus was lonely. There were times when Jesus was sad. There were times when Jesus was angry. There were times when Jesus was tired and discouraged. There was even a time in the garden when He wanted to quit. Now, why do we expect to be immune from those kind of circumstances? Hebrews 2.10 says Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. And that word perfect means mature. Jesus was made mature through sufferings. How do you think God is going to make you mature? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 says Jesus learned obedience from the things which He suffered. How do you think you're going to learn obedience? God uses the Word and God uses circumstances to make us like Jesus. Now of those two, which one do you think He uses most often? Well, let's say you read your Bible three hours a day. If you read your, your Bible three hours a day, how many hours are left in the day? Twenty-one. How many hours a day do you have circumstances? 24. You have them continuously. So which one does God use most often? He uses circumstances. But the problem is when God brings circumstances, we so often complain and fight against them that we don't get the job accomplished. You see, sometimes you can circumvent the circumstances if you pay attention to God's Word. For instance, I can read in James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Now I can read that and I can say, Lord, I voluntarily humble myself before you. Or I can read, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and I can say, No, I think I'll exalt myself. And so what does God have to do? He has to bring some circumstances into my life 
to humble me. You see, sometimes you can learn the hard way or you can learn the easy way. But if you're a Christian, you're going to learn these lessons because God's number one purpose is to conform you into the image of Christ. And this verse tells us He is working all things together to accomplish that end. Good things, bad things, happy things, sad things, bitter things, sweet things. And so the next time that you're tempted to play, what if, stop. And instead of wondering what if, turn to Romans 8, 28 and start knowing what is. God works all things together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and I'm going to have them lead us in a chorus that's going to be our closing prayer today. And it's that chorus, Humble King, which describes the humility of the Lord Jesus and expresses the fact that we want to be like him. This is really a prayer that says, Lord, I know your purpose for me is to make me like Jesus. Today, I want to cooperate and make that my prayer that you would accomplish that in whatever it takes in my life. Let's stand and mean it as we sing it to the Lord today.